Before we get started, a word from our friends at Keeley Companies. Keeley Companies builds communities with the power of one. Six distinct brands come together as one single source for construction, infrastructure, technology, wireless logistics, and development solutions. Their true differentiator is building people within communities through their world-class culture. Check them out at Keeley Companies to learn more. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. I was looking through some statistics on emotional health and well-being in our society right now, and one of the age groups that is feeling most depressed, most anxiety, most isolated right now. No, it's not 60 to 70 or 70 to 80. It's not that age group. And that's right. It's not that age group. It's our children. It's our young people. It's our college age leaders. It's our middle school kids. It's our high school student leaders. It's our young people right now that are reporting the highest levels of depression, of anxiety, of concern for tomorrow. Uh, Suicide ideation is on the uptick. It's been happening now for more than a decade. And this has been taking place long before, just to be very clear, even long before social isolation, long before virtual classrooms, long before COVID-19, which means... It's going to remain here long after these things pass. This has just elevated that sense of isolation, that sense of anxiety. So what do we do as teachers, as parents, as grandparents, as listeners right now to our podcast? What do we do with this to make a difference for our next generation, our next group of leaders? That's what the podcast is going to be about today. I'm bringing on a dear friend of mine. He's a phenomenal leader in this space. His name is Dr. Tim Jordan. Tim is a dear friend of mine. He's a developmental and behavioral pediatrician. He's the author of three books. He's a speaker, a consultant, a blogger, a podcaster, and an awesome human being. You're going to get a sense for that during our conversation together today. A little bit of the backstory on Tim is I've been reading this guy for years, probably more than a decade. And then when I was invited six years ago to have a seat on the board of advisors for my favorite not-for-profit, my favorite agency for good in our community, it's called Big Brothers and Big Sisters. They had on that board the president for the St. Louis Cardinals. They had on that board some of the real shakers and movers and, and leaders in our community. But they also had on that board this phenomenal human being. His name was Dr. Tim Jordan. And they brought him in for the wisdom that he can provide as we serve our young people. Big Brothers Big Sisters understood the power of Tim Jordan's message. And today, as you lean in, as you grab your journal, as you open up your heart, your mind, your notepad, grab your pen, take notes. I think you're going to understand some of the impact that he can have in your life. My friends, Tim frequently works with children who are ladies, who are daughters, who are girls, But today, this message is absolutely universal to your boys, to your sons, to your nephews, to your nieces, to your daughters, to the young people around you in your life. It will be convicting. It will be inspiring. It will remind you it is not easy what we're trying to do here together. But it is possible. There is a profound need. 
and the best days if we choose it. The best days are in front of us. This is the kind of episode you may want to uh, share with your friends. So get ready for that, my friends. So do me a favor right now. Get ready to open up your minds and your hearts to my friend and now yours. His name is Dr. Tim Jordan. Tim, welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the time. This is going to be fun. So it is going to be fun. And and, uh, I have the pleasure of having on folks that I meet at conferences or in my travels, or I read their book or bumped into them through social media. But today I have the pleasure of a true friendship with someone that I've looked up to and respected for as long as I've known you. So uh, you heard me brag about the work that you do, about the impact you've had broadly, but specifically on me. When you meet someone, though, for the first time, maybe uh, maybe at a grocery store, uh, maybe at a hardware store, maybe when you're out raking the leaves and, and someone says, hey, what do you do? How do you respond to that question? What do you do professionally, Tim? Well, I guess the easiest way to say is I work with girls. Um, and I, and I, the, th- the nice thing is I work with girls in so many different ways. I could never sit in an office, you know, five days a week doing the same thing. So I, I counsel girls uh, in a counseling practice two days a week. And then we, my wife and I have a school program. It's called Strong Girls, Strong World. So typically, every most weeks, we go to a school and work with a classroom of girls. I do a lot of writing. I have my own podcast. I have a blog, which I've been doing for a long time. And my wife and I travel and give talks 8, 10, 12 times a year. So I just do a lot of things. And, and, my, and probably the best thing that we do is we've been running weekend retreats and summer camps for, uh, for girls for 30 years. It's our 30th summer, which yeah. is unbelievable. And uh, their personal growth, leadership development in nature. So I've, I, I have such a, such an experience and I'm so grateful for 30 years to have sat in circles with girls and listened and heard their stories. And, you know, we formed a nice little supportive community. Um, it's like everybody, all the girls say it's like their second family. That's probably the best thing that we do. We're going to talk about those circles and those girls and yeah. three decades of that camp. I think sometimes, though, when you uh, when you hear someone else's story and certainly what they do professionally and their perspective on issues like you'll be bringing forward here in a moment, sometimes having a little bit of context and understanding where that individual came from uh, provides even a greater understanding on why we ought to listen, why we ought to lean forward, uh, take notes and take action. So. Dr. Tim Jordan, you were not born doctor. You eventually became that way in time. So I'd like you to share a little bit of around your upbringing. What was your childhood like, Tim? I was the third boy and we were like one year apart. And then my parents said, oh my gosh, we're never gonna have any girls. Then they had five girls. So I was the older brother to five younger sisters. And the last two were nine and 10 years younger. So even as a, as a kid, I was taking care of girls. I mean, I was, I was changing diapers. I was babysitting. Um, I worked with, with kids my whole life. I umpired core league baseball. I, um, I, I worked in summer camps for three or four summers as you know, growing up. So I did a lot of things with kids back in the day. And I, I often, I, I realized this after several years of running our camps, um, my, our home was okay. And there was good and bad in a big family. There's all kinds of stuff, but there was a lot of anger and it you know, wasn't always the happiest place to be, especially for me. I was kind of a sensitive kid and my two older brothers beat the crud out of me. I was bullied a lot and it made me tough, made me competitive, got me through medical school and got me through a lot of adversity. Um, but I think the camps that we created, I think 
unconsciously. It was a way to create a family where the kind of family I wish I had had, mm. where you could sit down in a circle and talk about what things, adversities you're going through, and you would be heard, you would be comforted, and you know you would get some advice, you would get suggestions. I think, in uh, in retrospect or whatever the word is, I think that was one of the reasons why we started the camp. So, I I never knew what I wanted to do other than work with kids. So when I went to college, I took education classes. My first two years, I took the pre-med, biology, chemistry, just in case I wanted to be a pediatrician. Did some act, I did, was acted in a couple of plays. I thought I might want to be an actor. I don't know where that came from, but I was in college. I was to do whatever I wanted. And so I decided on medicine because my pre-med advisor, Brother John Danu, I went to a Catholic university. He told me, you'd be a great teacher. You love kids. He said, but after a while, you, you might get a little bored. He said, yeah. then you could become a principal maybe. He said, but there's, that's maybe kind of not much beyond that. He said, if you go to medical school and get the MD behind your name, in the long run, that might open up more doors for you. And that was one of the main reasons why I decided to go ahead and go into pre-med. And I think his, his advice was appreciated, but I think it was, it's, it's been true you know, over the years. Did you go on with the expectation that uh, as you enter med school, you eventually will graduate and begin working with kids? Yes, I always knew I'd, I'd work with kids. But what was interesting is all along the way, I had these little experiences working with different kinds of kids. Like I worked with, with kids who were hearing impaired at one point for a little while. And I worked at a United Cerebral Palsy summer camp for two weeks, two different summers, just volunteered. Just opportunities to just kind of you know cross my path. I've got so many of these little experiences that end up causing me, once I got my residency done, my three years of pediatric residency, I became a pediatrician. I did a two-year fellowship in something called developmental and behavioral pediatrics. Yeah. And so then I, I did general peds for about two or three years and decided that, that wasn't it. And so about 30 years ago, I switched over and just, I've been a counselor ever since. Kind of a broad question, but I'm curious, as you step into this and as you get to know the issues, the challenges, the hearts of these little, little wonderful human beings, how has it changed your perspective on humanity? I know it's such a broad, like, whoa, but I'm wondering, are you filled with even greater hope or even greater despair after sitting across from children for decades, hearing about the challenges that they are trying to overcome? My first response would be yes, both. It fills me with uh, sadness sometimes because you, know, you, you see kids, I go to school, see kids and they look like they're just fine. Yeah. But then when I come, they come on a retreat and you get a chance to kind of pull the curtain back. They, they've all got stories. I think most of us have stories that's that saddens me that so many so many kids go through so much adversity. On the other hand, they get through it. I mean, even kids who have been through I've, I've you know worked with so many kids who've been through so much stuff, and yet they're they're, they're still bright. I mean, st I mean, you see the kid, you see who they really are. That's one of the things I think that we do well at our retreats and camps is we help ki we help kids kind of reframe things so they don't take it on. We don't want them leaving their childhood with baggage that says, I'm not good enough, or I'm not important, or I'm not lovable, or those sorts of things, which may come into their heads and their belief systems because of what they go through. So I, I'm, I'm filled with hope because once you get them away from the toxicity in their life, wherever that may be, whether it's a hallway of school or their home, you get them away and they come to a week of camp, they're just like, they're just, they're so happy. And they, their light shines and it's kind of like they're, they're still there. They just need the right environment. Tim, for the most part, it is a parent, a guardian, a principal, a teacher, a therapist, someone who's calling you or emailing you and making the introduction into you. 
what are the general challenges or the reasons why a child would come see you in the first place? Today, the most common things, especially with girls, because that's all I see, stress and anxiety mm-hmm. are probably the two most common causes. And I also see a lot of girls just struggling socially with you know girl drama, being excluded, that kind of stuff. But it comes in looking like anxiety or stress and that kind of stuff. Girls are so stressed out today. And for a lot of reasons, but there's a whole a whole list of reasons why girls are coming in stressed. And that also extends into college. I'm seeing more and more women in college in my counseling practice. And there's a, a group, every year they do a survey of like 80,000 or 100,000 college students from 40, 50, whatever colleges. And they ask them questions about their mental health. Mm. And it's it's startling. I don't have them right in front of me. I can, I can tell you, you know, in general, or kind of close to it. And girls statistics are always worse than boys. They ask questions like within the last 12 months, have you ever felt hopeless? Have you ever felt overwhelming anxiety? Have you ever felt like it's hard to get up in the morning and function? Uh, do you feel do you feel so stressed out? It's hard to you know get out of bed in the morning. Are you depressed, anxious, all those questions? And it's not like 20% or 15%. It's like 60%, 70% overwhelming anxiety and loneliness and things like that. There's so many young adults who are struggling. So why don't we just go there right now? And, and that the stats around loneliness and anxiety and depression and then suicide ideation uh, humble me. And it is part of the reason why I do the work that I do and why we're uh, even why you and I are having this conversation right now, because it's the pandemic was here long before COVID-19 arrived. I mean, it's, it's been around for entirely too long and we don't discuss it uh, anywhere near enough. So you, you talked about stress and anxiety that many of the girls that you see, but it's also being mirrored in many of the boys who are doing their life as well. 60, 70% are feeling like they're doing life completely by themselves, completely isolated. And yet, Tim, they're in school all day long, or the, at least they used to be. They have friends yeah. everywhere in social media. So it, it always amazes me when you know how busy and surrounded by human beings these kids are. But when that question comes to them, they frequently report that they feel isolated. Unpack that for me. The society has become so competitive. A lot of times I've heard this this expression probably hundreds of times when parents will tell me they want to give their kid a leg up. They want their kid to have an edge, which is why they're signed up for a club sport team 12 months of the year. And they're not playing on one club sport team. They're probably playing on two teams. And there's no breaks. And they're going to these enrichment classes. And this is not just wealthy parents. It's just all kinds of parents where there's so much pressure about, you know, we're trying to jam every one of our kids on this one narrow path. Mm-hmm. Every kid should get, you know, straight A's in grade school and middle school, and especially in St. Louis to go to a good high school because we're so, you know, flipped out about high school. And you're supposed to get, you know, straight A's in high school. So you can go to a, not just college anymore, a top college. That's what parents will say. That's what kids will say, a top college. They want to get good grades in a top college. I'll say, why? And they'll say, so I can get a good job. Why do you want to get a good job? So I can make a lot of money. When I ask a room full of adults, which I've done in my talks, that line of questions, it almost always ends with to make a lot of money. If I ask a room full of high school senior girls that question, the exact same answers come out of their mouths. So they've, they've been conditioned that they've absorbed it. And I'm not against money. This is not about money. Yeah. This is about what drives you. And if you're driven by being rich or famous or looking good, those external kind of things, you're going to end up miserable, uh, less happy, less fulfilled, poor relationships. There's a, there's a whole body of research that would, would, would point to that. The majority of kids don't fit on that path. 
every kid doesn't need to go on that particular path. I ask young people all the time, I'll say, what percentage of people in the US today, between the ages of 22 and 35 have a four year degree? And the typical answer they give me is things like 60%, 70%. I'll say it's about 30%. So they just assume that everybody goes and you have to go and you should go. I saw a young woman this morning. She's a, just finished her freshman year in college and she's been kind of depressed and she lost her motivation. Her grades weren't very good. The COVID stuff and going to college is such a ugh, whatever thing today. We start college virtually and yeah. with all the stuff going on. But I think even more important for her and more important for many young people is I said, why, why are you in college? If I see a 16 year old in my office, I'll, I almost always ask them, what are your plans after you graduate? And a lot of them look at me like I'm an idiot, like, well, I'm going to college, right? I'm like, well, why do you want to go to college? I act dumb. Why do you want to go? And it's, it's amazing. I, I get, usually get one of two answers. One answer is, well, I want to, get to go to a good college so I can get a good job and make a lot of money and put, take care of myself. Okay, that's your parents, probably. <laughs> and the second line, which is most of them, they go, I, I, well, I, and they don't have an answer. This girl today had no answer. She said, I've never thought about that. I said, you might want to think about that. You know, why might you want to, if you want to go to college, why? What's your purpose? And I think that starts, you have young kids. That starts when they're young, when they're, when they're dancing, when they're playing soccer, when, they're, when, they're, when they love to draw. I always like to ask kids, you know, why do you like to draw? And then close my mouth and listen, because mm. then they will tell you their internal motivation. I, I, my wife and I were running a father-daughter retreat in Canada about oh, about two years ago. These are girls, seven, eight, nine-year-olds. And um, we were talking to the dads about motivation and asking girls these questions. And we had a session with the dads and their little girls together. And this one little girl was sitting on her dad's lap in the front row. And so I said, let, let, me, let me show you what this looks like. So I said, Lily, um, what's your favorite thing to do? And she said, I love to dance. I said, why do you like to dance so much? And her face just lit up. And uh, she said, I like to dance because you know, at first we go out there and they kind of tell you what to do, but then I can do my own thing. I can kind of dance and just do my own steps. And her dad's sitting behind her like, I've never heard this before. What she was saying was, I want to be in control. I want to be in charge. And this gives me the freedom to just express myself. That's her intrinsic internal motivation that will always be there for her. That's what we need to learn to ask for, listen for, mirror back so they internalize it as opposed to what happens for a lot of girls like this girl this morning which is i'm going because if i didn't i disappoint my parents mm. and everybody else is doing it so i want i want kids right from the start you know you have young kids right from the start to start to figure out why do i like to do these things what is my purpose what does it mean to me what's the feelings behind that Tim, do me a favor and, you know, listening to us right now, it's you and me having a coffee together as friends, but we happen to have a whole lot of grandparents and parents and aunts and uncles tuning in right now to your voice. What are some questions that we can kind of lob over to our children and the young ones in our life who we love and we want to see excel their version of success, not ours. We want to see them thrive from their perspective. What are some questions so that we can help them better understand what their version of success might be? I would ask that if they score a goal in soccer, I mean, we assume like I'll ask, I'll ask the kids, you know, or what kind of grades do you want? Well, they're like, well, I want A's. Well, why do you want A's? I always act dumb. Why do you want A's? And again, they kind of like look at me like, uh, hmm, why do I want A's? But then usually they come up with something like my definitions of success in school might be A's because, 
and they give you a reason. Like that little girl with dancing. I'll never forget, there was a girl and I were at a family's house in another state several years ago. Uh, we knew the family and the, the daughter was in, I think sixth grade and she was in gymnastics. She was like a level eight, hardcore, one of those kids who, you know, after school at three o'clock goes to gymnastics, doesn't get home till 8.30. She, she came in at 8.30, we were eating dinner. So she sat down, we were like, hey, how you doing? We, we've known her for a while. And um, we started asking her, I said, God, it's a lot of time. Yeah. Um, why do you like doing gymnastics so much? And I'll never forget this. She said, well, you know, what I like is, and her dad quickly interjected. He said, hey, honey, go show them your hardware. And, and I was like, what? Your hardware? She goes, dad. He goes, honey, go, go show them your hardware. She's like, fine. So she gets out of the, up the, from the table. We follow her into her bedroom and her room is lined with her hardware. Yeah. trophies, blue ribbons, all those things. She's like, here's my ribbons. And we said to her, why do you like gymnastics? I'll never forget her answer. She said, you know what? My favorite thing is the floor exercise. Cause I'm standing there at the beginning and it's totally quiet and all eyes are on me. I get this, this feeling like I just, I don't know. I'm just, I'm totally there. And when I start flipping and everything, she goes, I'm totally hundred percent present. I love, I love entertaining people. So that's her, de her definition of success isn't blue ribbons. It's not trophies. It's that feeling I get when I'm entertaining people. And I'm totally there, you know, 100% in the present moment. So as we ask kids questions along the way, why that is important to them, whether it's making a team or getting a spot on the play or getting the lead in the play or scoring a goal in, in hockey or whatever it may be, I think all along the way, I think it's good to, to ask, you know, what does that mean to you? Tim, you've been doing this for a while. Uh, gymnastics has been around even longer than you've been doing this, but technology really has not been. I'm curious how technology has changed the little ones you see, whether they are five-year-old girls or uh, in the old days when you used to visit with teenage boys. So how, how has technology changed this generation of, of kids? I'm almost done writing a course about social media because when, when people ask us to come give talks and things, we always say, well, what kind of things you want us to talk about? That's either number one or number two in their list. So I've been making up this extensive whole thing about uh, technology. You know, I, I think one thing we have to remember is as, as adults, because I think adults judge how much kids, especially teens, use their phones, their social media. But the truth is we sort of force them into it. And I'm talking about pre-COVID. COVID is another whole layer because of virtual this and we can't get together. But even before all that, the truth is that in the last 10 to 20 years, we have shrunken their geographic freedom because we're so afraid of kids being kidnapped. We're so afraid of all those kinds of things. And so in, I'm older than you, but I think it's probably true for you too. In our day, we went outside to play, right? I was riding my bike miles away and uh, we were out in the woods shooting guns and blowing up stuff with our cherry bombs and M80s. And we were out and about, right? That's where we hung out on the street, in the woods, at the skating rink, at the whatever. We don't let our kids do that today. And if you tell your kids, well, go out with, and play with your friends in the street, they go out in the street, guess what? There's nobody there because they're all out of town at a soccer tournament. I'm exaggerating to make a point, but it's kind of sort of true. And so in a sense, we've, we've taken all that away. So it's like they, they want the same thing we want. They want to hang out with their friends. They want to do it with, with some sense of privacy where it's just kids without adults hovering because we hover a lot. We're at all their games and all those events, which is, I want the parents to go to the events, but there's, they have very little just hanging out time. So they hang out online because we've sort of forced them there. So that's one of the things I think that's changed is 
is we sort of force them into connecting there, much less you add COVID. And that's a whole other other story um, with that. I also think we blame social media, we blame phones and things on uh, mean girl stuff and bullying and all that. And I say that's, it, it didn't start there. It just magnifies there. Mm-hmm. They bring they bring their stuff from the hallways of school and you know all their little things that go on between them. I don't think the phones and the social media cause that, but I think it goes it just amplifies it, it magnifies it, it goes way farther. You can't escape it. I think that part's true. It adds another layer on top of that. And I think that we start kids way too early. And I created this whole list of, of signs of readiness for social media and social kind of signs and uh, emotional kinds of signs and uh, responsibility kinds of signs. Because most kids, for instance, if without the social media in their phone, if those if the girls involved in a lot of drama and they have a hard time not getting sucked into it or responding to it or you know being hurt by it or letting words hurt them, et cetera, et cetera, then it's going to get even worse when they when they're on social media and phones because of all the reasons I think we understand. Um, so I think they need if they're not setting good boundaries for themselves without the phones, they're not going to be able to do it on the phone because it's ten times harder. So they need to show me that they have the, the maturity, the impulse control, the ability to take care of themselves without, I'm talking about off the phones, with it, within their relationships, with arguments, how they handle conflicts. They need a lot of education, they need experience, and at some point they'll be ready to then try that. And to me, social media shouldn't be started till I think probably at least high school for, for most kids, kids plus a track record right now are yelling for mom to turn off the radio immediately. <laughs> this guy's, this guy's an idiot, mom, turn it off. But you aren't just kind of shutting your eyes and throwing out a number. There's valid research behind this. And there's experience after experience after experience yeah. with the young ladies that you see behind this and the young men that you used to see behind this. So tell the parents and the grandparents and the aunts and uncles who are listening right now, why you think it's really important for us to allow a child to develop a bit before we allow them to take on their identity by what others say about them. It's for the same reason I didn't let my youngest son, I'll never forget one time, Ann and I were walking, my wife were, walk, were walking around the block and we bumped into a neighbor whose son was my son's age. They were seniors, going to be seniors in high school. And we were talking and hanging, you know, because we knew them. And the two boys walked out and they said, oh, by the way, we just want to let you guys know that we're going to Mexico for spring break in March. This is like in August. And we're like, oh, really? And they had it all planned out. I mean, they had researched it. They had their arguments like that. It was awesome. And we're like, that is incredible. I love the way you research this. And there's no way you're going to Mexico uh, in March. Well, we're going to go to college. We'll be in college in five months. I said, yeah. And after you've been in college from April, or I'm sorry, from August until the following March, hopefully you'll have learned a lot about taking care of yourself and you'll be able to handle that context. We don't think you're ready to handle what's going on around you. So even if you have a kid who's pretty mature, it's not, they're not the, you know, they're going to be in a pond with all kinds of stuff that's really hard to maneuver until you have the maturity and the experience to really take care of yourselves. So I think to me, it's not an exact age. It's more about even starting with kids who are younger with other things, you have to earn the next freedom and the next privilege and you earn it by your behavior over time. So if you want to have a dog, we don't just get you a dog because you're whining. I want a dog. We'll say, well, let's start with a fish. 
All right, let's start with the hamster. And here's let's talk about the, the ways to take care of a hamster. You got to feed it. You got to clean up the poop in the cage. You have to, you know, blah, 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 blah. And if we see that you can handle a hamster for two or three months, then you'll have shown us that you might be able to handle the responsibilities of the next level, which it might be a dog. Does that make sense what I'm saying? And so it's the same way with technology. Maybe you start with TV or a video game or, or you know, there's some games on the computer. And so you, you talk with them to get, and you create some agreements with them, with their input about usage and time and all that kind of stuff. And if they can comply with whatever you agree to, you know, for months, not for a day or two, because they can all fake it for a couple of days. If they've had months of good behavior and all that impulse control with that device, then they've shown you, I might be ready to try the next level. So I think all on the way, no matter what it is, I think they can, they can learn that they earn it with their behavior. I, th I think that's true with driving a car, going away to college. It's true for everything. Body image, Tim. It, it seems to me, you know, one of the stats I heard you share on a podcast, I, I love your podcast. I'm an active advocate listener. I think Thank the you. average age where bulimia and anorexia sets in is 12.3 years of age. So at 12 yeah. years of age, in just a couple months, that's the average age where our young women, young ladies, are becoming anorexic. So give me some of the reasons, what, first on why that happens and in particular at such a young age now. And then secondly, for those of us who have young girls coming toward that age, or maybe they're a little bit beyond that age, how do we help instill in their life what a truly healthy sense of self and body image might be? Well, let me start with the last part first. It's really important that we educate our daughters to be image and media savvy. Because even though your daughter might be 12 or 14, you think that they know better. When they look at pictures, a lot of times, whether it's uh, or, uh, in a magazine or whether it's on an internet or it's on Instagram or wherever it may be, or the, we think they know that that's not how they really look, yeah. but they don't oftentimes. So we need to keep educating them about that's nobody looks like that. There's some really good sites online, like before and after pictures, which shows even like movie stars or, or rock stars with no makeup and no airbrushing and no, no nothing. That's, that's not the right way of saying it, nothing. And then they show them all made up like six hours later. So it's like, oh my gosh, they look, look like the same person. Dove.com has some good videos you can watch with your daughters. Um, I think I always tell people, watch TV shows, watch movies with your daughter. There's good research that shows that when you watch shows and movies and things like that with girls and then have little discussions about it along the way and ask them, what do you think about that? That those girls become way more protected than girls just watching that stuff on their own. Um, so I think the media savvy, media savvy piece is important, like what's real and what's not. And I teach girls all the time that, that if you're looking at what advertisers are doing with, with uh, soda commercials or beer commercials, whatever, they're not selling you makeup. They're not selling you soda. They're selling you the idea that you are not good enough unless you have this product. You in and of yourself are not okay. If you want to have friends and be cool and be pretty, um, you need these things. Otherwise, you're, you're a loser. You're not going to have friends. You're, you're not good enough. They're selling you the idea that you are not enough and you need this, whatever it may be. They need to understand that. So then when they start looking at ads and start looking at pictures, they can start to have that voice come to play that reminds them this is either not real or we, we we'll, sometimes we'll get magazine covers at camp and we'll, we'll have all, you know, have all words on the magazine covers. Let's talk about what words are on there. What are they trying to say to you? 
with those words even. They need education. So that, that's the last part you asked. Also, today, the average age for girls to get their first period, the last time I checked, was about 11, 11 and a half. That's way earlier than it was 20, 40, whatever years ago. And so their, their bodies are starting to change now. A lot of times in fifth grade, fourth grade, the early ones, fourth, fifth, sixth grade. And I think that starts a lot of that looking at other people, comparing themselves. I, I saw a statistic a long time ago that the average girl between the ages of, I think it's nine and 13, i.e. they've been through puberty, they gain about 40 pounds on average. Uh, normal pounds, like curved pounds, right? You're supposed to for a lot of, a lot of evolutionary uh, kinds of reasons, but they don't see that. They just see, oh my God, I'm getting fat. And they compare themselves a lot. The, the, the girls who have the hardest, in my experience, are the ones who go through puberty first. Because here they are in fourth or maybe fifth grade, and they have acne. They've got breasts. They've got curves. And they get teased by the boys. And then they they got these little stick figure friends. <laughs> you look like sticks. And they don't look like that. So then they think they're fat, even though they're not fat. They're just, just gaining normal kind of puberty kind of weight. I teach girls that anytime you compare yourself anything, grades, uh, how you look, whatever it might be, you're screwed. Because in their mind, they will always find somebody who is prettier, smarter, more athletic, uh, more talkative, funnier, more popular in their mind, which means that they were always going to be discouraged. Yeah. And that starts with their siblings, you know, comparing themselves in different ways with their siblings. It may not be about bodies. It can be sometimes but more about how smart somebody is in school or how athletic somebody is. So we can start teaching them right from the start about the, the trap of comparing yourself to other people to try and get a sense of, am I okay? You're trying to decide, am I okay by looking out there? You're in trouble. One of the exercises you do at camp, and I, I had not heard of this before, I think it's really cool, is you actually have everyone shut their eyes. And then you ask them a question like, how many of you feel like you are like in the bottom half? You know, and you, you kind of ask all these questions where you're assuming that the room would be about split. Can you, can you share the phraseology around the questions you ask and around the results that you found? Yeah, my favorite one is I'll ask them, how many, with their eyes closed, looking down, so they don't know, how many of you feel like you're behind your peers when it comes to like party kind of things or dating kinds of things or just, you know, kind of being just older kind of things. And 95% of the girls raise their hand, which I know is going to happen because I've done it so many times. And then I'll say, now everybody look up, keep your hands up if it's up, look up. And they look around like, What? These girls who they think, really, I thought she was so cool. Yeah. And so they, they need to know. They, they, that's one of the, the, the best values of our circles, our circle time, our, when we're sharing and learning and all that, is that they think they're the only one who's struggling with these things, with body image, with their negative self-talk, with feeling behind, blah, 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 blah. They think they're the only one. We do an exercise. Um, it's called cross the line. Where we put a rope down the middle of the room, and they all go on one side. And then we, we will throw out a, a statement like cross the line if you ever feel stressed with your schoolwork, cross the line if you've ever been teased, cross the line if you've ever been left out by a friend, blah, 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 all those kinds of things. And then with almost every question, you know, almost all of them cross, if not all of them. And at the end of the exercise, we'll do maybe 20 things. Then we always ask them, now you guys throw some out. What do you want to learn about this group? And they all throw out really good, good ones. Then we'll sit down on the carpet and we'll say, so how'd you, how'd you like that? What'd you learn? And almost always they say, I had no idea. 
I wasn't the only one that so many people crossed the line that everybody crossed the line when they about people who had um, been excluded or left out. I, did, I had no idea that people felt lonely or whatever. So now maybe it's, I'm not so different. Maybe I'm not so weird or whatever. So they need spaces where they can start to realize that they really do share a lot of that. They don't talk about that stuff at school, right? Because they don't know where it's going to go because of the gossip and the rumors and the talking about people behind their backs. And, and even girls who I've found over the years who have lots of friends and they're popular and stuff. We ask them, do you have friends you can really count on? Most of them say no. So Dr. Tim Jordan, we can learn more about this by going to your website and enrolling in your camp. But the reality is we have friends tuning in from 50 states and 75 different countries who are thinking that maybe I can't quite pull off the camp this coming summer in 2021 or 2022 or whenever it may be. Give us some tools to empower our young people to push back the tide of anxiety, to improve their sense of self, to believe that they are enough, to stop comparing as frequently as they do. And I know I'm asking you to do, do an awful lot with a few ideas here, but help us to parent, help us to lead, help us to love in such a manner where our most precious asset, our children, our nephews, our nieces, realize that they are enough. What are some things that you would recommend yeah. for the moms and dads in the room to consider doing right now? Anytime they, they face an adversity, like they lost a friend or they got ditched by their group or something of that sort. I know from 30 years of experience on retreats that they all, every girl goes in, and this is true for boys too, they go inside their heads and they ask themselves questions like, why aren't they calling me? Why they leave me out? Why are they making fun of me? Uh, or I've had some kids who've been through divorces and maybe their dad doesn't call anymore. You know, the dad remarried. And so now he's got a new family. Why doesn't my dad call me anymore? They ask themselves questions. And even worse than the questions is they answer the questions in their head with their own private logic, trying to figure it out. And unfortunately, most of the time, what they decide is not healthy stuff. It's, they'll decide things like I'm not good enough or I'm weird or I'm awkward or, or I don't fit or uh, nobody likes me or I'm not very important. I'm not lovable. And so one of the things we can do to answer your question, one thing we can do is when they go through any kind of adversity, I think um, have those moments where you sit and have little heart to hearts and ask them, I know right now because they happened, you're probably asking yourself a lot of questions about why and wondering what you're saying to yourself about it hmm. and see what they say. I had a girl the other day, I said, you know, what's come to your head because you got left by your friends. And she immediately, immediately blurted out, I'm a loser. I was like, whoa, yeah. I haven't heard that one in a while. So I would want to know what they're thinking. And then you can help them reframe it, help them understand why people might treat them the way they do so that they don't internalize it. That's one thing. You, you mentioned anxiety. I want kids to understand what anxiety really is because it's not a bad thing. It's just, it's really nature's way of saying, check it out. There may be danger. It's like our, it's the amygdala is our warning system. The fear part of our brain is just saying, you know what? There may be something that's not cool here. There may be something that doesn't feel right. So check it out. It doesn't mean overreact. It doesn't mean believe. It just means check it out. Yeah. And so I teach girls to check in with themselves when, when they feel those anxious feelings, to understand what's going on in their bodies when they have that fight or flight reactions of their heart pounding or their stomach feels upset. There's, there's very good reasons why. So I demystify that. And then they need skills. They need tools to, to take care of themselves. I teach them breathing exercises. I teach them to, re, to repeat mantras. I teach them all kinds of tools. They need a toolbox full of tools to help them when those feelings come up. Let me give you one quick example just popped in my head. 
the girls who I see who are the most stressed about school oftentimes are the ones with the straight A's. <laughs> it's not the C students, but the A students get, you know, they're, they're hard driving, a lot of them intense. And so I'll ask them a question. I'll say, what's in your, let's just say they're in 10th grade. In your 10 years of school, I'll tell them, I'll ask them on your report card, not a quiz, but on a report card at the end of the semester, how many F's have you had? And most of them are like, what? I say, how many F's have you had in a report card up till now? And most of them will say none. I'll say nine. They'll say, no, none. I say, oh, none. How many D's? None. How many C's? And almost always they say none. Or sometimes they'll go, I think I had one back in third grade or something. And I'll say, so what's your typical report card? It's usually A's, maybe one B sometimes. So I'll tell them that's the truth about John O'Leary is that if you do your normal amount of studying, do your normal effort, your normal strategies and all those kinds of things, we already know what your report card is going to be at the end of the semester. So, you know, focus on the journey, not the destination. Destination being the grade. Don't worry about that part. Just focus on, is there anything I can do today to, to prepare for the test on Friday? Don't, you know, don't focus on, and also remind yourself, my truth is, I know what the report card is going to look like if I do my normal stuff. I don't need to worry about that and get all stressed out by that. Tim, I'm, I'm raising a girl. You may know that her name is Grace and she's lovely. She's also a, a sweet little thing. She's only eight still. Oh. She's also got some older brothers who are 10, 12 and 14, just recently 15. Uh, they're a little bit less open than my daughter, Grace. I could talk to Grace about anything and then spend the next hour and a half listening. I could set up a perfect question for my 15 year old. And if I'm lucky, I get a head nod in response, you know? So sometimes yeah. the conversation with the, the old boy, the 15 year old is a little bit more reserved, shall we say. So for the parents who are trying to have these instructive conversations with their kids, but they're not getting the feedback that they think they need, how do we, how do we keep after it? How do we have uh, these instructive life-giving conversations with kids that don't seem like they want to have it with us? Several suggestions. Number one is you get to find the right context because this isn't true for every girl, but it's true for a lot of girls. That's why they love our circle time. And the boys didn't years ago with our camps. Um, the direct sort of how you're feeling, what do you want to talk about? That's more girl friendly. I'm sure I'll get lots of flack because it's whatever, but it's, it's just sort of kind of true in general. Um, so you have to find the right context for boys, for instance. Uh, people talk about how they're, they, they'll tend to share better when it's shoulder to shoulder, when you're, when you're driving in the car, or maybe you're outside uh, kicking a soccer ball around, or maybe you're at a sporting event or something. And then, so it's not like sitting down, making eye contact. It's more like just chatting when you're kicking a soccer ball. I think a lot of times you have to find the right time where, where your son or daughter will open up. There are a lot of kids I, I work with who their, their best way of expressing themselves emotionally, the deep stuff doesn't come verbally. They're just not that great at that part. But when they write letters to their parents, it's like, oh my God, what was that? My daughter was that way. It was like, holy, but we didn't know all that was in there, but she expressed herself better, like, like, you know, like with letters. And my daughter and I starting in, I think it was by late middle school, we, we had a journal that we passed back and forth. And so sometimes I just write a little fun note and I'd put it on her pillow and sometimes she responds, sometimes she wouldn't. Uh, and sometimes I would ask her, tell me what's going on with your friends. I, I know she, so she would write, write it out. And I, it was like, whew, so clear. Whereas yeah. if I had done it verbally, it may not have come out, come out quite so, so clearly, if you will. So I think you have to find each kid's 
like the key to their doorway. And, and when the door opens a crack, you know, you, you make sure you don't blow the opportunity because it doesn't always come with some kids. I would have tuck-ins, you know, lights out for some kids. That's the best time you're just sitting on the bed. It's all quiet. There's no distractions. You're, and you're hopefully fully present. You do the best you can. And sometimes they may, they may talk to one parent more than the other. That doesn't mean you're a bad parent. It just means for some reason they may connect more with your wife or, or, your, or they may connect better with you at certain ages at certain times. Please. There's a great metaphor I heard a long time ago. It's called the turtle and the hailstorm. And the kid's a turtle and we're the hailstorm. And so as kids get a little bit older, your daughter's pretty young, but when they get to be like you know, 11, 12, 13, middle school, they start to retreat a little bit into their shells because that's what you do, right? You want a little bit more privacy. You don't know all their friends like you did when they were in second grade, uh, which is normal. It's okay. But sometimes that worries parents. Like, is, is he okay? Is she okay? And, and then they might come home from school and just kind of look kind of crabby and they just go to their room. You're like, what happened? And so we start to hail more. We ask more questions with a little bit more intensity, which is very annoying to the turtle. So they retreat further into their shell. Which Were you in my house hail... yesterday? Yes. <laughs> Sounds very familiar, man. You're it's kind of weird. The hailstorm starts hailing more. And so they get this dance going where the turtle retreats way back in the shell and the hailstorm is hailing way more than either. Both sides are, have been pushed to an extreme. So I advise the parents, don't hail. Watch your energy. Don't give them 30 questions when they walk in the door. Um, find the right time, the right context. Listen. If you're, if you be, if you can be a good listener and a, a nice safe listener, that allows maybe the turtle to stick their head out a little bit more. And I advise the turtles, the kids, I tell them it's in your best interest to give your parents more information because if you don't, if you come home saying fine and you stomp off and you slam your door, what have you just taught your mom and dad? Have you taught them I'm doing great? You don't have to worry about me. Or have you taught them, oh my God, freak out? And, and they say, oh yeah, they worry more. And if your parents are more worried, are they going to be more or less intrusive? More, right? So you're, if you're willing to come forward a little bit more and be a little bit more transparent and give them enough information to tell them how you're thinking about things and how you're doing, then it's easier for the, the hailstorm to quiet down. So they both have a responsibility. Well said. I know we're uh, beginning to run shorter on time, but I have questions that came in from not only our social media links, but every one of my team members. Uh, some, several of them are parents. Many of them are aunts or uncles. And the very first one, Tim, that I want to ask is from Abby. She's raising a couple of little boys right now. They're three in one. And her question is, with all the noise around everything you have to do, she put in quotes, for your kids' early years to ensure they are ready for school, not behind, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What are one of the most important things to focus on? So with all the stuff that they're saying, you got to do this and that and that to get the kids ready. What are you really uh, one or two of the most important things actually to do for your little ones as you're getting them ready for school? When you're with them and you're playing with them, be fully present. So turn off your phone, turn off the TV, be fully present. Number one. Number two, they learn the best when they're young like that playing. They don't need enrichment uh, videos and blah, blah, blah. I mean, those are whatever. But what they need is to sit on the floor and play. And for you to follow, that's the best. It's just to follow their lead and, and just 
I remember when our kids were little, they'd be on the floor putting something together or my grandson's just turning three actually today. Um, it's, you can become like an announcer. Oh, it looks like, looks like, yeah, his name is Louie. It's like, Louie, look, 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 Louie, you got those little animals, what are they doing? You just kind of announce, you just kind of follow their lead. And they, what you're saying to them is, you're important and I love watching you play. I'm not going to get my hands in there and show you how to do it right. Yeah. <laughs> I want you, I want you just to play and be creative. And if you spend that kind of time with them and you sing nursery rhymes and you do those kinds of things that are just fun, they learn. Mm-hmm. I've, I've talked to speech therapists in the last 10 years who tell me that a lot of kids are entering school behind in reading because their phonics are bad. And she said, one of the main reasons is that parents aren't doing the old nursery rhyme kinds of things. They're sitting in the car watching a movie or, or playing on a screen. Whereas if you, we used to, you know, sing songs and we, at least we did sing nursery rhymes and things. Mm-hmm. That's how they learned phonics. So I think that just kind of um, being present, being fully there, following their lead. And, and remember that you don't need to, you know, get them ahead of the class or to give them an edge or, or all those kinds of things. Just relax and play and talk to them, read to them, have lots of books, just the normal kinds of regular things. That's more than enough. Mm. You, you mentioned earlier about the dad and telling his girls in gymnastics, go, go get the hardware, man, go get the hardware. <laughs> if you had told him in real time about the value of listening, I think sometimes that's really hard to receive as a parent, this idea that you haven't been doing perfectly to this point. And it ties into Matt's question to you, which is how do we get parents to truly listen? To, to truly listen. There's a difference between hearing or asking a question, how was your day while they're reading their phone? But how do you get parents to truly listen to their children? Besides that's the right thing. The, the other motivation is if you want to be an influence now and forever, your daughter's eight. Most kids are kind of open when they're eight. But if you want her to, to come to you and share with you when she's 16, then I think you, you know, and, and you want to be an influence and be able to you know, be there for her. I think it helps now to, to learn how to be there for her, even when it's like smaller things when they're six, seven, eight, nine, however old your kids are. We, I teach kids in camp mirroring and the same thing with adults. Mirroring is just repeating back in your own words what you heard the other person say. So I heard you say is that you had a tough time with your friends today because a couple of girls didn't talk to you at lunch. Is that right? Okay. Uh, tell me more. Mm-hmm. And I, what I say is get in their shoes and see it from their point of view. And this doesn't mean you agree with them necessarily, but what you're saying is, I love you. I care about you. I want to see it through your eyes. And if I can do that, I know I, there's times I might be able to, you know, have you see it in a different way, but more importantly, it's just to hear them. And every adult I think I've ever talked to ever has always said that most of the time when we're upset about things, we just want people to listen. Yeah. We don't usually need advice. Maybe sometimes you do, but most of the time we just want people to listen. And the male brain, I think the, uh, the, the person who asked the question was a, was, a, was a dad. The male brain tends, when, when there's emotion around them, the male brain goes right to the fix-it mode. Mm-hmm. There's a part of our brain, the temporal parietal junction that gets activated. It's the part of the brain that wants to solve problems and fix things. And when, the, when that part of the brain that activates for us, our emotional centers die down. We stop feeling that's been wired into us for 150,000 years. So we need to know that and catch ourselves from going into fix it and just listen. You need to, you need to sort of take in that that is enough. And getting in their shoes, a lot of girls tell me they don't share things with their dads because they say, my dad would never understand. He wasn't a girl. 
I'll say, well, mm, I, he wasn't a girl, yes, but you may be surprised. And the reason they say that is because dads don't share their stories enough with their kids. So they understand, they look at us like you're the finished product. You're this really cool guy. You got a podcast, <laughs> you, you, know, you have a job, you have a, you have a nice wife, you have this, this nice life. They see us as, as a finished product. They did not see you when you were in sixth grade. I'm, I'm assuming you probably weren't awkward because you're. Oh you're man, so they would cool, have seen most, They would have seen one this morning too. They were looking more closely. But 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 they didn't see us with acne and braces and right. whatever else. They just so we need to remind them. We had stories where we struggled with friends. We may have struggled in school. We may have had a hard time with a teacher, whatever it may be. So they can go, oh wow, maybe he he can relate hmm. because he went through maybe not the exact thing, but the feelings were similar. Tim, Sandy wants to know in the midst of the pandemic, she mentions all of the stats around what things were before the pandemic around stress and anxiety and body image and everything else. How do we help our children navigate these times as many of them now are in month 10 of virtual schooling and stress seems to be elevated and disconnection seems to be elevating? How do we, how do we love our kids in the midst of a pandemic? Well, I think we need to, uh, I've seen so many parents who are still too wrapped up in um, time on like phones and social media. I tell them, that, especially today that I talked about our shrinking geographic freedom. So when you add in, you know, you can't socialize, you can't go to a party and there's right. no prom and, blah, blah, and no sports for a lot of kids, then they've got to have some time with their friends somehow. So I would work together with their kids to find out, you know, figure out what are enough, what's enough time that you can stay connected. And try and find some ways. Like, like I've had a lot of teen girls, especially they're the older girls. Like they'll meet their friends at a, at a state park and they'll hike. It's safe, so they may not be able to go have a sleepover, but they can find some ways to do that. Uh, I've, I've the, the girls I've seen who've had the toughest time academically are the ones who have ADHD-ish kind of symptoms and the ones who are artistic, because they're a different kind of learner than just sit down in front of a screen and listen. And so they sometimes what they need is a tutor or somebody to kind of physically, you know, help them with their learning because they, they have a hard time not being hands on and multisensorial with it. So I would I would look for things like that. Um, and also, I, I, I've been working a lot with girls to help them focus on what do you have control over instead of focusing on like they, they have a picture like this is how you know, sixth grade was going to be, I was going to start high school. I've all jacked up because this is my picture of high school or like that girl today, my picture of college going away to college is at Mizzou. This is going to look like this thing. And that's been blown up. So, so there's a lot of loss with a lot of different things, not just people, but events and activities and sports and things. So those are things that you don't have control over, but what do you have control over? What could you do? To, um, uh, fill yourself up. So I've had girls learning how to play guitar and ukulele and they're, they're painting and they're doing all kinds of things. They're, some of them are online, uh, you know, with causes, you know, I've had I've, a bunch of kids who are, who started businesses like making jewelry and like, like my, like my friendship bracelets or whatever. So it's kind of like, it's, you can't do this. That's true. But what could you do? How could you fill not just fill up your time, but fill yourself up what could you do that would bring you joy and fulfillment and stuff? Let's focus on that. It's and great advice more thing, for a parent to a child, but it's also great advice for us adult leaders to yeah. uh, also abide by. The last piece I'll I do is, is gratitude. 
I have, I teach kids to focus on gratitude. I have them do gratitude journaling. Final question for you, my friend, you wrote a book called She Leads. Tell me when you, when someone finishes that book, I know it came out in March in the midst of the pandemic, but it's still a worthy read. And I still encourage our listeners to check it out. What, what do you hope a reader might get out of that book? She Leads. One of the most important things I've noticed is that um, we don't recognize leadership in our daughters uh, enough. If I ask a group of girls, which I've done dozens of times, who are the leaders in your school? They will say the student council president, the team captain, the queen bee, the pretty popular girls. If I ask them who are the heroes in our culture, they'll say first responders, you know, the fire people, military people, sports stars, and today it might be doctors and nurses and whoever in the hospital. But most girls don't fill those roles. That doesn't fit for them. So I, I want parents to start looking at what are other ways that our girls show courage and leadership. Things like they stand up for their friends at school. Things like they don't care what other people think about the way they dress. Girls know how to go to somebody directly and handle their conflicts. Girls who don't allow words and teasing to hurt them. Girls who bring the class together, who unite people. The girl who notices somebody in the cafeteria sitting by themselves and they go and say, hey, can I sit with you? There's so many ways that our girls show leadership that's not recognized as much as those other things. And I think I want us as parents and teachers and adults to start looking for those things and recognizing those and, and letting our kids know that because I want them to see themselves as leaders. Because mm. if they don't see themselves as leaders, then, then there's a good chance they may not step up as much. Well, Tim Jordan, I, I could spend 14 hours with you and, um, and not get up from the table once. Unfortunately, I know you have, uh, you have other obligations in your life to move into. We have seven rapid fire, that tie, rapid fire questions that tie all of our guests together. So I'm going to bounce through these very sure. quickly with you. Question number one is, what is the best or more, most effective, impactful book you've ever read? A, a book called Awareness by Anthony DeMello. Oh, man. Uh, it's my, it's my favorite personal growth, growth book of all time. Also, a book I read a year ago that I liked a lot is called Supernormal by Meg, Meg J. Have you read that? I've not. About all the different adversities the kids go through and how they go through it. It's, it's a really good book. It's called Supernormal. Yes, for one, we got two. I like it. Yes, yeah, sir. So keep, keep thinking outside the boundaries. <laughs> what is one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a little boy growing up that you wish you exhibited today as brilliantly as you did back then? I would say taking time with friends, like going out in the street, being with friends. I, I have friends, but I, I, I tend not to reach out as much as I probably did as a kid. My guy hey, friends. That's yeah. a great answer. If, you, if your home caught fire and all living things, people, pets, animals, everybody's out. You have an opportunity to race back into that house and grab one item. What's the one thing you come running back outside with? Pictures. Is there one in particular, Tim? Uh, oh gosh, you can't see my wall. I have all these big blown up pictures of uh, girls from my camps and family and stuff. I look, probably I, I have some pictures here of me with like lots of uh, like our camp counselors who are like college age or high school age and who I've known since they were like a lot of them since they were eight. And so it's a, uh, those pictures mean a lot to me. If you could sit on a bench on a perfect day with anybody, living or dead, who would you want to be seated right next to? Besides General Leary, it would be, besides my wife, um, gosh, I pro it might be Anthony DeMello. I obviously, he was, he's been dead a long time. I'd never met him. He's, he's one of my 
literary mentors, but he, he's somebody I would, would love to sit with and talk, talk with. What's the first question you would ask Brother Anthony? I would I'd probably ask him where he found all of his stories. He, had great, he, he wrote a bunch of storybooks. That's how I found him was through storybooks, and I, which I use in my talks and things. I would love to, I, I know where some of them came from, but that's one of the things I would want to know is how he developed that part of his life, which is he was an incredible storyteller. Well, dude, I mean, you look in the mirror if you're looking for another great storyteller and you'll find an, another one. Anthony's got nothing on Tim Jordan. <laughs> I've been to enough of your events, read enough of your books, read enough of your articles and listened to enough of your podcasts to hear a ton of awesome, beautiful stories. Thank you. We're near the end though, my friends. So question number five is what is the best advice that you've ever received? I was feeling a little stuck, probably my mid thirties, late thirties. I was going through this two-year training process with my wife to teach these weekend retreats for adults. And uh, the guy, one of my mentors, Bill, he was, he was since passed away. He told me, uh, he said, your problem isn't, isn't what you're doing. Cause I was thinking about shifting what I was doing. He said, your problem isn't what you're doing. It's why you're doing it. And so I became aware that because of my older brothers, I'm going to blame them. And, my family, I, I, I emerged from childhood with a, a belief system that said I wasn't good enough. And so I was always striving to keep up with the big kids and all, all that kind of thing. So I had that, that in my head a lot. And so what he said was, you're, you're doing a lot of things to prove yourself. And he said, and you, you've doing all, you're doing all these great things, he said, but it's not fulfilling. He said, I would just shift why you're doing it. So I shifted into, it took me a while, I, I did some soul searching. And I, the first line of the prayer of St. Francis became my mantra. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. And so I started doing talks and things just to be of service and not worry about, do they like me? Are they going to applaud for me? Are they going to come to the next class or something? I, I, I adopted that like 30 years ago as my mantra. And that's shifted everything for me. That's so good. Tim, what would you tell your 20-year-old self? What advice would you whisper into his ear? I would say... Find your own reasons for doing things. Um, you don't need to please everybody. I was a pleaser growing up to avoid being yelled at and stuff. And I, I didn't find my real voice and all that until I was in my early 30s. I went to high school and college and medical school and residency and fellowship. I didn't get plopped out till I was, I think, 33. Never having taken time to go, what is this about? So I would, I would tell him, you know, figure those things out earlier and uh, uh, do it for your reasons. So just two weeks ago, I had on Ian Morgan, who is an expert in the Enneagram, and he just shared that so much of the way we present today is a direct outgrowth of the way we were raised or the, the sense of self or what brought us peace or what kept us safe. The way we show up today, whether you know it or not, it's coming from our childhood. So Tim, yeah. I'm glad you are aware of it. It took you until your yeah. mid-30s to figure it out, but you figured it out, man, and now you're teaching us. So question number seven for Dr. Tim Jordan is this. It has been said that all great people and instruments of peace can have their lives summed up in one sentence. Tim Jordan, how do you want your one sentence to read? It's the same one that was on my high school yearbook. Great is the man who never loses the heart of a child. Tim, thank you for uh, listening to the advice you gave yourself at age 18. You've been <laughs> living into that man for several decades. And I've benefited from your wisdom. I know of countless other readers Thank and you. podcast listeners and pa parents who have sent their kids to your programs who have benefited. You are an instrument of peace. You have uh, made a profound difference and your best days remain in front of you. Thank you for saying that. I'm glad to hear that. My friends, uh, this is Dr. Tim Jordan. My name is John O'Leary and today is your day. 
Live inspired. And now, a word from our friends at Keeley Companies. In the words of Keeley Companies CEO, Rusty Keeley, when it comes down to it, there are two things that make Keeley Companies incredible. People and process. The strategic growth model called the Keeley Way ensures that Keeley achieves results on purpose, including five-year visions, scorecards, meaningful action plans. The Keeley Way allows Keeleyans to turn dreams into reality and drives goals to realize visions. Because of this relentless focus on people and culture, Keeley Companies has experienced explosive growth that shows no signs of slowing down. Learn more at KeeleyCompanies.com.